Hello. Wonderful. It's so good to see so many new faces here today. If you don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm the vicar here at St. Thomas's. If it's your first time here, then let me say a special welcome to you. It really, really is wonderful to see so many new faces here today. Please do stay behind at the end. We would love to get to know you a little bit better. Now today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. So do open that up in your smartphone or your tablet or whatever it is that you've got in front of you. And we're going to work our way together through this amazing, gripping story that Jesus has told. Now to give some context for this parable, Jesus is in the last few days of his life. He's just entered Jerusalem and the crowds have worshipped him and hailed him as king. In fact, some of the crowds have been saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one whom we've been waiting for. And yet in just a few days, Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross. And the same crowds that worshipped him are going to be crying, crucify him. Now, in these last few days of Jesus' ministry, he tells some amazing parables that make sense of why he died for the world. And that's what he's doing in this parable of the wicked tenants today. So let's get struck, stuck straight into this. So, so keep the passage open in front of you. Verse 33. Jesus introduces us to a master a master of a house or a landowner, your translation may say. Now, when Jesus says master or landowner, don't think that he's like a landowner of just a tiny little property or he's master of just a little house. Imagine this master has a huge home and he's got an incredible amount of land. He's got an incredible amount of resources and he's got a load of people working for him. Now, this master digs a vineyard and he begins to plant the best grapes that you can think of, a bit of Merlot, a bit of Malbec. And in order to make the, the vineyard the best it can be, of course, he puts in a wine press. He builds a tower. He then leases it to some tenant farmers and goes off to a different country and he leaves his tenants in charge of the vineyard. Now, those listening to Jesus' teach, to teach 2,000 years ago, as Jesus introduced the scene for this parable, they would have immediately been reminded of Isaiah chapter 5, this prophetic book that the Jewish people held as the word of God. All of these people would have been reminded of Isaiah chapter 5, in which Isaiah says God is building a vineyard, and he's going to plant this vineyard, and he's going to introduce a wine press and a tower. Now, in that particular passage in Isaiah chapter 5, God is angry that the people aren't producing fruit. So the people hearing this would have thought, okay, Jesus is telling us a story here about Isaiah 5. He's retelling the story, if you like. And Jesus is retelling it in such a way that he's putting himself right at the heart of the parable. Now, we'll see how he does that as we go through the verses. So we've got this master of a vineyard, and this parable is about the kingdom of God. Verse 34. When it was time to bring in the harvest, the master sends his servants 
to the tenants to get the fruit that the master or the landowner is owed. Now, this would have been perfectly normal. Of course, in many regions all over the world today, this practice still happens. You have wealthy landowners. They lease their land to tenant farmers. The farmers do their thing, and the landowner will come and collect what is his or hers right at the end. They're legally due something that the land is producing. Now the point that Jesus is making here is that the landowner is perfectly entitled to his share. He's perfectly entitled to get what is legally his. There's nothing unusual going on in this parable so far. Verse 35. Now in verse 35 the parable takes a shocking turn in its narrative. The tenants see these servants coming And they know that these servants are going to be asking for the tenants to give to the landowner, the vineyard owner, what is legally and rightfully his. Well, the tenants do not want this at all. They want to keep everything that they've produced just for themselves. And so they hatch a plan together, and it's a pretty wicked and evil plan. They say to one another, why don't we kill the master's servants and then we can keep everything for us? Now this is horrendous. It's evil and it's nothing short of cold-blooded murder. And as Jesus was telling this story, the people listening to it would have been absolutely shocked. Now in verse 36, the master hears about what has happened. And he would have been well within his rights to get justice, to make what has been made wrong here right again. He could have made sure that his wicked tenants were punished. But in a shocking act of patience and grace, the landowner sends yet more servants to the vineyard to get what is his. He he effectively gives these tenants a second chance. Now, as the servants were approaching the tenants, this second lot of servants, you'd have thought that they'd be moved by this act of compassion. You'd have thought that they'd have been moved by this act of grace. But no, the tenants end up doing to the second group of servants exactly what they did to the first group of servants. Some are stoned, some are tortured, some are even killed. Now, in verse 37 hearing that the tenants have killed yet more of his servants, the master continues, the landowner continues with his plan. This time, he's going to send his own son to the vineyard to collect what belongs to him. Now, those listening to Jesus' story 2,000 years ago for the first time would have been saying to one another, surely the wicked tenants are not going to kill the son. Surely they're not going to behave to the son the same way as they did to the messengers. The master has been so gracious. He's been so patient and now he's sending his own son. Surely they're not going to kill him too. Verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son coming, instead of being moved to do what is right, they say to themselves, now's our chance. We already have a plan to take everything from the master that legally belongs to his 
on the land. But now the son's coming. If we kill him, we can get his inheritance. We can get everything that belongs to the master if we just kill his son. It's so wicked and it is so evil. In verse 39, the tenants follow through on their plan. And there isn't a single dissenting voice among them. The son arrives at the vineyard, the tenants take him out, they beat him, and then they have him killed. Now those listening to Jesus' story, as he was telling it, would have been absolutely shocked. There'd have been a stunned silence. How wicked can these tenants be? They've killed two groups of messengers. They've now killed the master's son. It's a shocking story. And this is where Jesus ends the parable. But then in verse 40, Jesus asks a question. What will the master of the vineyard do to these wicked servants when he comes? Now, before we answer that question together today, let's just have a look at the parable from the perspective of Jesus telling it and who the characters are. Now, of course, the master of the vineyard is God. And like the master, everything belongs to God. Everything that he has created, it is all his. The God that we worship is Lord of all people. He's Lord of all nations. He's Lord of it all. And because he is Lord, he can do with the world, he can do with his creation what he wants because it all belongs to him. But like the master in the parable, God is gracious. He's patient. When we behave in deplorable ways, when we behave in wicked ways even, he's patient and he's slow to anger and he offers us a chance to change. The Bible word for that is to repent, to turn 180 degrees away from the life that we're living and back to God. Now, God has always been like this. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 103. And verse 8 says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. God is patient and gracious and slow to anger and kind. Now, like the master, God is also a father. Now, this is significant because it means that God is not just some theological construct. It means that God is not just some philosophical idea. Christians believe that God is a father. And that means that God is relational. For God to be a father, he must exist in relationships. And he must have always existed in relationships for all of time. Do you know the most fundamental truth about Christian doctrine, about what Christians believe, is that God is one One God in three persons. The most fundamental thing we can say about God is that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has always been that way. 
So for all of time, the Father has been loving the Son, who's been adoring the Spirit, who's been loving the Son, who's been adoring the Father, who's been adoring the Spirit, who's been loving the Son. And so it goes on and on and on. God has always existed in relationships. And that's why us being people that he has made in his image are so wired for relationships. It's why we find lockdown and social distancing so hard. Because we're made in his image and he is fundamentally relational. So God is Lord of all. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's a father. He's relational. Sounds like a pretty amazing God to me. Now, the second thing that we learn about God in this parable is that God has sent us messengers to tell us about him, just as the master sends messengers in the parable. God has sent us messengers to reveal who he is. That's what the whole of the Bible is. It's God's word written down for us. God is always and has always been communicating with his people. Now, just as the tenants ignored the master's messengers, we too often ignore what God is saying to us, don't we? In the Old Testament, so many of God's prophets, so many of God's messengers were either stoned or tortured or put to death. Zechariah was stoned. Jeremiah was tortured. And so many others. We see in the Old Testament that the people didn't always like being told what to do. They didn't want God's word to define them. They wanted to do things their own way. But how often do we behave in exactly the same way? Yes, God, I know that you want me to do that, but would you mind if you just let it slide for a few weeks? Or yes, God, I know that you make that claim over my life, but would you mind if I just ignored you for a while over that? Or when we're challenged by an accountability partner or somebody in our small group or whatever, we'll just turn a blind ear to it and ignore it. How often do we behave in the same way? Now, thirdly, the third group of people in the story we'll look at are the tenants. And of course, this is where we find ourselves in this story. Now, look, I behave in the same way as these tenants all of the time. We all do. And this is where Jesus wants us to see ourselves in the narrative of the parable. And it's not just the case that we behave um, in the sense, you know, that we think that we know what is best for ourselves. We think that we know what's best and we'll reject what God says in his word. It's, it is that, but it's worse than that. We behave as if everything belongs to us. We forget that we're just stewards of God's creation. We think of our money as being our own. Not as something to give back to God, not as something to bless the poor with. We see what comes into our bank accounts and we think that's is mine. Or in our attitude towards our homes. Instead of treating them as places of hospitality and radical welcome, what we do is shut, you know, we batten down the hatches and think, now this is mine to enjoy. Now, of course, we can't do hospitality at the minute anyway because of uh, local lockdown. But how often do we behave like that regardless 
of local government restrictions. We think of our bodies as being our own. I'll do what I want with my body. Rather than remembering that our bodies are a gift from God, more than that, a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. Now, we proclaim all of the time with our actions that we owe God nothing and that we want to be Lord and King of our own life. Now, the tenants don't just behave as if everything they have belongs to them in the vineyard. It's worse than that. They want everything that belongs to the master in the parable, and they want it to belong to themselves. That's why they hatched this plan to kill the master's son. But again, how often do we behave like that? We think we want everything that belongs to God, and we want it to be true for us and for our life. Tim Keller says this, sin is looking to something besides God for your salvation. It is putting yourself in the place of God, becoming your own savior. That's what the tenants were doing. But we try and become our own savior all of the time. We write our own rules. We think we know what is best. We'll start to define what is right or wrong. We try and take what is God's and say, no, I am Lord, not him. Now, this is a daft thing for us to do. It's daft because in the person of Jesus, God offers us all of himself anyway. He offers us everything. How does he do this? By sending his son. So let's just have a look at the son in the parable. Now, like the master in the story sent the son, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he represents fully who God is. If you're here today and you're asking questions about who God is, then this is what Jesus claims. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know who God is, look at the person of Jesus. And like the master, God sent his son Jesus despite the fact that he knew that we were wicked. God sent his son despite knowing what would happen to him. Now in the parable, the tenants have already killed the messengers. They've killed two groups of them, in fact. And God sent his son into the world after his prophets, after his messengers had been tortured and killed, he sent his son knowing he would die. And what's more amazing is that Jesus chose to come too. Jesus chose to come knowing that he would hang on a cross, knowing that he would be tortured and killed. Jesus still came. Now, I find that absolutely remarkable. That God would look to the very depths of humanity's sin and mess. That God would look to the very depths of my mess, of my sin, and yet still choose to come for me anyway. 
Again, Tim Keller says this. The gospel is this, that we are more evil and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now, isn't, isn't that what this parable is telling us? Do you see how big God's love is, how big his heart is for the people that he is saving? So back to Jesus' question in verse 40. He asks the people listening to this parable, what will the owner of the vineyard do when he comes to these wicked tenants? Well, let me ask you this. What would you do? What would you do if you'd sent some messengers and they'd been tortured and killed, and you'd sent your son and he too had been killed? What would you want to happen? Your answer would probably be the same as those listening to Jesus' parable. And they reply in verse 30, 41, He should put those wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to other people who are going to bear fruit. Now, if that too would be your answer, what you're saying is that you want justice. You want justice for the wrongs here. You want them to be made put, you want them to be made right. Now, the thing about God is that God also wants justice. He can't stand evil. He can't stand the mess in the world. He can't stand the brokenness and the poverty and the the sin and all of the stuff that is crippling our world right now. And God looks at it and says, that needs to be put right. How would we feel about worshipping a God who would just let evil slide? So how does God deal with this and how is he just? Well, in verse 42, Jesus asks those listening to him another question. Have you not read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? That was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what Jesus is doing here is is that he's quoting Psalm 118, which was a messianic psalm, a psalm about the coming Messiah, and Jesus is applying this psalm directly to himself. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying here? You might reject the Son. You might reject the Messiah. You may reject me, but I am still the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone, of course, if, um, the cornerstone is like the first brick that you build in a building project. It's the most important bit of the building. It's the stone on which everything else is built. Everything else must conform to that one stone or else everything else will collapse. Now the same is absolutely true in our lives. Our lives will ultimately collapse if they're not built on the true cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. If our, li- if our life doesn't align to Jesus, it will ultimately collapse and perish. But If we build our life on Jesus, we get everything that belongs to him anyway. We don't need to try and steal it. We don't need to take it for ourselves. He gives us it as a gift. How? Well, because Jesus, in coming to the world to die on a cross, he exchanges his perfection and his glory for our imperfection 
and our mess. He became what we are so that we can become what He is. And for those of us that choose to trust in Jesus, that do repent and turn to live God's way, God sees us in exactly the same way as He sees His Son. He looks on us with the same love and adoration as He does His own Son, Jesus, which is the most amazing thought I think one could ever have. Now, do you see how liberating this is? We don't have to work to be accepted by God. We don't have to try and steal bits, of, bits from Him or bits from anybody else. We don't have to work up our own identity. We don't have to please Him. In accepting that Jesus died for us to offer us His perfection and His glory, we get everything that belongs to Him anyway. In fact, the Bible says that for those who trust in Jesus, they are co-heirs with Christ. That means that everything that belongs to God is given to us as a gift. Now, Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation on the continent, he was reading parables like this, and he wrote in his journal this uh, when, he was, when he was reading this, this teaching about you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. He wrote this, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. It was that thought that sparked the Reformation. John Stott, the Anglican theologian, put it like this. God could have quite justly have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. It is what we deserved. But he did not. Because he loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross where he bore our sins, guilt, judgment, and death. It takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. So let me ask all of us today, are we moved? Are we moved by the love of God that's been uniquely revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? Are we moved by this amazing love that soars to the very depths of our mess and yet loves us to glory anyway? Because if we trust in the cornerstone, if we trust in Jesus, God's justice is poured out not on me, but on Jesus himself. I know that I deserve what Jesus says in verse 43 and 44. I know that I deserve that. And yet Jesus says, I'll take it on the cross for you so that you can be free. So let me ask again, are we moved by this love? Are we moved to recognize that God is Lord of all? that he is just, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in love, that he's a father in heaven? Are we moved to recognize that God has always been speaking to us through his word, through his prophets, through the people that wrote the Bible? Are we moved to accept that and accept that God has always and will always speak to us? Are we moved to behave as if not everything belongs to us? 
and not to have an attitude that's individualistic and say, I'm going to keep what's mine just for me. I'm not going to offer any of it back to God. I'm not going to use it to bless anybody else. I'm just going to use it for me. Are we moved not to behave like the tenants in this story? And are we moved to repent, to turn to God, and trust in Jesus that he is the cornerstone? And that if we build our lives on him, it will not be a mess. It will not crumble apart because he promises to always hold us together. Are we moved to do that, either for the first time or afresh today? Are we moved to respond to God's amazing, wonderful, challenging, inspiring, and beautiful word? Let's do that now. We're going to respond together. Will and Ellie are going to come and join me. And why don't the rest of us stand? And if you're watching at home, you may want to get yourself into a position to respond as well. You may want to put out your hands in front of you just as a sign that you're willing and ready to receive all that God has for you in his word today. We pray. Father, would you challenge us right now? Would you help us align our lives, our hearts, our thoughts, our homes, our money, everything with your heart for those things? And God, we stand here today and we say that we are moved. We are moved to recognize that you are Lord of all, that everything in this world belongs to you. And we say sorry where we've behaved as if it's ours and ours to keep and ours to lord over. We say afresh to you, it's yours. We are moved today, Lord, to say that we know that you're speaking to us in your word. Help us not reject it, but accept that your word is good. It brings life. It brings freedom. It brings healing. It brings transformation. Lord, we stand here today and say we are moved to behave as if everything is yours. We say that we want to be generous with our finances. We want to be generous with our callings, with our jobs, with our relationships, with our course, with whatever it is that you've given us. Help us be generous and give it all back to you. And Lord, we stand here today and say, either afresh or for the first time, that we say that we repent. We turn back to you. We say sorry for the wrong in our life. And we pray by your Holy Spirit, help us, build, help us build our lives on the one true cornerstone that is Jesus Christ.
and I'll give some specific things to respond to in just a moment. But we're going to sing, if you're at home, if we're here, we'll worship along in other ways. Um, this hymn called, um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the last verse goes like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, even that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now when we get to that verse, what we're saying is this. Even if everything in all of creation was ours, all of everything on planet Earth, everything in the solar system, everything in the entire universe belonged to us and we were to lay it at the feet of Jesus, even that would be an offering far too small for all that he's done for us. Because he's given us everything. He's given us all of himself. And so when we sing that, let's, when we proclaim it here, whatever, whatever it is we do, we're saying that even if we were to give all of that stuff, it wouldn't be enough. And so let's choose today to give him our term, to give him our academic year, to give him our wallets, to give him everything that we have and say, God, take it. It is yours. Do with it what you will. Help me not be Lord of my own life. I want to submit to you as Lord, for you know best. So let's give everything that we have to him, recognizing that he's a good father. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. He's speaking to us. He gives us everything. And let's turn to him today.